fully back on track now in our, in our series on the book of Numbers as we're looking at some of those selective stories um, out of this book. And, and, and what we are going to see today, now that we've arrived in Numbers chapter 13, is really a turning point, the turning point for the nation of Israel in the wilderness. It's kind of where the proverbial rubber meets the road with respect to their faith. And, and on that road, what we're going to see is that they are fooled. And they end up following what they see instead of what they know. And I'll, I'll explain that for you as we move through this message. But it's kind of interesting to me because, you know, a lot of times I, I read these stories like we're going to see here in Numbers chapter 13, and I'll, I'll just say, man, that, that nation of Israel, what a, what a bunch of sad suckers, man. Like, how could they be so dumb? And, but I'm afraid to tell you this morning that, that we are them and they are us. Yeah. Let me illustrate that for you. Um, you know, how many of you have been to a haunted house? And now, wait, 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 you don't have to admit it. You don't have to admit that you don't have to raise your hand. You don't have to admit that you're partaking in the festivities of the devil's holiday. I mean, it, it was just last week, so it's, it's at least timely, if not appropriate. But anyway, I suspect that even if you've never been to a haunted house, you know what it is. I'll admit to you, I, I used to go to haunted houses. I was young once and dumb at the same time, and I'm, I'm much more mature now, so different. Um, but when it comes to a haunted house, how, how are they successful? How is it that they prey, you know, on their visitors? They prey on the simple fact that while you are in that house or in that building, you're going to let your feelings rule. You walk in knowing that none of it's real, that it's all a show, and yet while you're in the midst of it, it doesn't feel like a show. It doesn't feel fake. And because of what you see, you let your feelings take over, you become scared, even though there's really no reason to be scared. They're not going to touch you, they're not going to do anything to you, but it feels like they're going to. And it's one thing for that to happen as you're walking through a haunted house. But the problem is that just like the children of Israel, we do that exact same thing when we're walking through life. We end up walking by sight and not by faith. That is what we are going to see today. That's why I've titled this message, The Walk of Sight. But that's not how we are supposed to live. We, we know this from 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7, where Paul tells the Corinthians this very thing. He says, for we walk by faith, not by sight. And you get a little bit more explanation of what that actually means from verses like 2 Corinthians 4.18. It says, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And Romans 8, verses 24 and 25 says, For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. See, God's goal for your Christian life and for my Christian life is for us to walk by faith, not by what we see in this physical, temporal life. Walking by sight leads to a life of wandering. 
And ultimately a life that is not satisfied, that results in murmuring and complaining and never gets the inheritance that God has for you all along. That's Numbers 13. It's no coincidence that 13 in the Bible is the number of rebellion. We'll talk about biblical numerology in a little bit, but when you see the number 13 in the Bible, it represents the number of rebellion. That's why I said it's a turning point for the nation of Israel, because it's where they finally decided to walk away from the Lord, to, to not walk in faith not follow through on what he had for them. It's where they ultimately rebelled. Now, there's been plenty of rebellion before Numbers 13. There's still more to come after Numbers 13. But this was the decision. This was the one. This is where they stared God in the face and said, no, I'm not doing it. And again, as we've talked about with every message, there are so many lessons for us, we won't read 1 Corinthians chapter 10 again, but we know by now that everything that happened to the nation of Israel during this time is for our learning. They are examples and insamples of the lessons that we need to learn and that we need to apply to our life. And these lessons that we're going to learn today involve the steps down in the walk of sight. There's a progression that we're going to see this morning that led the children of Israel to completely move away from the inheritance that God had for them. And this is important because we are in danger of taking those same steps down as well. So we need to make this personal this morning and see what God has for us individually and collectively. So let's look at it together. We're going to start in in verse 1 of Numbers 13. Then we're going to skip a large section in the middle. So just follow along with me. Numbers 13, verse 1. The Bible says, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Send thou men, that they may search the land of Canaan, which I give unto the children of Israel. And every tribe of their fathers shall ye send a man, every one a ruler among them. And Moses, by the commandment of the Lord, sent them from the wilderness of Paran. All those men were heads of the children of Israel. So you, you see the, the stage is set, and they, they were going to send out these 12 spies. Then in verses 4 through 16, we're going to skip. Um, Moses gives us the names. He gives us the, the 12 people that are sending out, the tribes they're associated with. Then in verses 17 through 24, and I think we have that up here. We're going to actually, we're actually going to skip down to verse 25. But in 17 through 24, you see their path. So we get the route. They start in the south, they move up through the mountains and to the north, and then they come back a different way, but back down south again. And so we see the cities that they go through and, and, and the route of their spy mission. But down in verse 25, this is where I want to pick it back up, and we'll finish out the rest of the chapter, see the rest of the story, because this is where we see the report and the results. So starting in verse 25, it says, And they, obviously speaking about these spies, they returned from searching of the land after 40 days. And they went and came to Moses and to Aaron and to all the congregation of the children of Israel under the wild, uh, unto the wilderness of Paran to Kadesh and brought back word unto them and unto all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him and said, We came unto the land whither thou sent us. 
and surely it floweth with milk and honey. And this is the fruit of it. Nevertheless, the people be strong that dwell in the land. The cities are walled and very great, and moreover, we saw the children of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south, and the Hittites, and the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the mountains. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and by the coast of, J of Jordan. And Caleb stilled the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. But the men that went up with him said, We be not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And they brought up an evil report of the land which they had searched unto the children of Israel, saying, The land through which we have gone to search it is a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof. And all the people that we saw in it are men of great stature. And there we saw the giants, the son of Anak, which come of the giants. And we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so we were in their sight. So let's, let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to, to teach us something this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, we love you. We're so thankful for your word today. We're so thankful for these lessons and these and samples that we have out of the book of Numbers and the wilderness wanderings of the children of Israel. And Lord, how they're so applicable to us today. So Lord, I pray that you teach us, uh, each and every one of us, what we need. There's something everybody in this room needs to hear from you today. There's all something in our lives, Lord that we need to examine and we need to look at. And, and so, Lord, I pray that you do uh, your work as only you can. The Holy Spirit in each individual here um, uh, convicts and convinces and does his work. And, Lord, that, that your word goes forth um, and, and does uh, what, it, what it only can do. Lord, I pray that everything is said is true to it, and I pray that it's honoring and glorifying to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's a pretty well-known story in the Bible. Many of you have, have heard this before. It's a good Sunday school standard. We have the 12 spies sent on the mission to check out the promised land. Ten come back with what the Bible calls an evil report. And then two, Caleb and Joshua come back and say, you know, let's, let's do this, man. We, we got it. Let's go possess it at once. Now, now, you don't actually see that Joshua and Caleb were together in, in chapter 13. You're we're going to see that next week when we get into chapter 14, and you see it in, in, in other subsequent chapters as well. But So we end up with two sides. We have the majority side and the minority side. And unfortunately, the nation of Israel goes with the mature, majority report, not understanding that because God was on their side, they were in fact the majority when it came to facing all of the people in Canaan. But like I already told you, there were some steps that they took along the way that led them to this truly disastrous decision. And these are the steps down the walk of sight. And the first step down that we're going to see with the children of Israel is they doubted God's promise. They doubted God's promise. See, God had delivered his people from Egypt that they might enter the promised land and receive his blessing. And I know that this is going to come as a huge revelation to you. But it was called the promised land because it was land that God had promised them. Listen, we, we break down the word of God like few other places do here. <laughs> but this promise goes all the way back to Abraham. In Genesis 12, 7, the Bible says, And the Lord appeared unto Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. And there builded he an altar unto the Lord who appeared unto him. And then in Genesis 15, 18, we see it come to fruition. In the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, Unto thy seed have I given this land. 
from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates. And then in Genesis 17, 8, I will give unto thee, and to thy seed after thee, the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And he, he gives the same promise to Isaac in Genesis 26, 3, then to Jacob in Genesis 28, 13, and again in, in Genesis 35, verse 12. He reaffirms that promise with Moses, Exodus 3, 8, says, and I'm come down to deliver them out of the land of of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land unto a good land and a large unto a land flowing with milk and honey unto the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. He reaffirms it with Moses over and over again. Exodus 3:17, Exodus 6:4, 6, 6:8, 6, 13:5, 33:3. And in Deuteronomy 6:23 it says, "And he brought us out from thence that he might bring us in to give us the land which he swore unto our fathers. We even saw it in this chapter in verse 1. Numbers 13, 1. God said, this is the land that I have given you. And those are actually just a few of the references. There are others. And the point I'm making with this is that this was the land that God had promised was, th- was theirs and he had communicated to them that promise over and over and over and over again to every generation. There was no surprise. There was no mystery left to solve. It was theirs. They just had to go in and possess it as their own. And they knew it. There was no question about this. And at this point in the journey, they've made it to the wilderness of Paran up near Kadesh Barnea, which is just south of the southern border of Canaan, the promised land. And this wasn't where they were to enter. So this isn't the time, you know, if they would have came back, you know, this isn't even where they would have entered. But they, as part of their wilderness journey, they had made it very close to the southern edge. They were always going to cross the Jordan River from the east. But they've made it close enough that they decide to check it out. So the people talk to Moses and say, hey, Moses. What do you think about us sending some spies in to check out where we're going? Right? We probably ought to get the lay of the land here. We're, we're right at the edge of the border. Maybe this is a good spot. The Bible puts it this way in Deuteronomy 1, verses 22 and 23. And, and, and the first you know, few verses or first few chapters in, in Deuteronomy is, is Moses. It's the it's second giving of the law, and he starts out that book by recounting kind of what happened in the wilderness. And he says in verses 22 and 23, And ye came near unto me, every one of you, and said, We will send men before us, and they shall search us out the land, and bring us word again, by what way we must go up, and into what cities we shall come. And the saying pleased me well, and I took twelve men of you, one of a tribe. I want you to pay attention to those words. What they didn't say was, Let's send some spies in to see if, to see if we can do this. And that's not what they said. They said, let's send some spies in and bring us word again by what way we must go up and what cities we're going to come. They knew this was their land. They just wanted to see, see what it was about. So Moses thought it was a good idea. He obviously talked to the Lord about it because as we read in Numbers 13, 1, the Bible says, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Send thou men that they may search the land of, of Canaan, which I give unto the children of Israel. 
So now, not only was it the children of Israel's idea that Moses agreed with, now it was a commandment of the Lord to send these spies in. And there was a reason that the Lord wanted them to see the land and all that it contained, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And while not explicitly stated, we know that the Lord wanted them to see the land because he wanted to test them. He knew where they were at in their walk. And he knew that they had been walking by sight. And he knew if they continued that they weren't going to make it into the land. And so he wanted to test them. And he wanted to see what was inside them. And I say that because when talking about the spies in Numbers 13, 25, the Bible says, and they returned from searching of the land after 40 days. So I know that it was a test because first it was a command of the Lord. And second, because of how long it took, 40 days. We talked about the number 13 in the Bible representing rebellion. Well, if you know anything about biblical numerology, you know that the number 40 represents testing. It represents an opportunity to trust the Lord or not. Because of their failure here in Numbers 13, the children of Israel end up spending 40 years in the wilderness. Saul was given 40 years to prove himself as king. Through Jonah, God gave Nineveh 40 days to repent. At the onset of Jesus' public ministry, he fasted for how many days and how many nights? 40. 40 days and 40 nights. And guess what? He was tempted by the devil. And that list goes on and on and on. Those are just a few examples. When you see the number 40 in the Bible, it nearly always has some connection to testing and the opportunity to trust the Lord. And so this spy mission was a test. God was testing or trying them in the same way that he tries us in our Christian walk. And there are plenty of examples, plenty of verses you can find that, that, that teach this. But James 1 Verses 2 and 3, this is why he says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. You see, there are times in our life where God wants to see what we're made of. Are we going to trust him or are we going to trust ourselves? Are we going to walk by faith or walk by sight? Are we going to possess the promise of God? Or are we going to throw that away and keep wandering around just getting by? Just living life in light of the temporal instead of the eternal. And the problem with our Israeli spies is they brought back doubt with their report. Now it starts out okay, but it doesn't take long for it to go south. Let's, let's break it down. Look back at, at verse 26. And they went and came to Moses and to Aaron and to all the congregation of the children of Israel under the wilderness of Paran to Kadesh and brought back word unto them and unto all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. So now we get to hear from this majority group first. And, and, and one thing that we have to know before we get into their report is that the majority is rarely trusting of the Lord. They are nearly always average, mediocre, or shall I say, lukewarm. The majority are typically, go typically going to produce average thoughts when brought together. And for average thinking people, 
The threat always outweighs the possibilities. So with that background, look at verse 27. And they told him and said, We came unto the land, whither thou sent us, and surely it floweth with milk and honey, and this is the fruit of it. They recognize the opportunity in front of them. They agreed that it was exactly as God had already told them. They even brought back some evidence. They showed them the fruit. We didn't read this, but in verse 23 it said they brought back grapes that they had to carry on poles. They were that big. And they brought back pomegranates and figs. And again, this is the lukewarm majority group of spies. But at least they got started right. At least they saw the opportunity. Which leads me to ask you, when it comes to your walk with Christ, at a minimum, do you at least see the opportunity? Do you see yourself getting or being involved in ministry? Do you see yourself functioning for the Lord in a fruitful way? Can you at least see it out there? Do you see any opportunities in this church to be a servant? Do you see a way to be used by God in a greater way to accomplish the mission that he has for you? What do you see when you look out and look upon your life? We have to give this majority group a little bit of credit because at least they could see the opportunity even with their physical eyes. But when we read the next two verses, we recognize that while their acknowledgement of the opportunity was great, they still doubted God's promise. And I want you to listen to this next sentence very carefully, because this is the key. Because they didn't doubt the promise of the land. We've already established they knew it was theirs. There's no question about that. What they doubted was the promise that God could take them in. He brought them out of Egypt to take them into Canaan. That's what they doubted. Numbers 13, back in, in verse 28, says, Nevertheless, the opportunity is great. It is a land that flows with milk and honey. Look at the fruit that we brought back. Nevertheless, the people be strong that dwell in the land. The cities are walled and very great. And moreover, we saw the children of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south, and the Hittites, and the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the mountains, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and by the coast of Jordan. They thought, listen, the enemies are just too great. Have you seen those guys? They're way too strong for us. So when life brought about some uncertainty, they succumbed to the uncertainty, to the doubting, instead of looking to the promise that they had from God. And listen, how many people does that describe in our Laodicean lukewarm Christianity today? You see, at least in America, at least in New Philadelphia, Ohio, the problem isn't understanding what God has said and, and what he's promised in the world. That's not really the problem. We, for the most part, we know it. We understand what's ahead of us. We just don't know if we can get there. We don't know if it's worth it. We doubt that walking in the Spirit will take us where we really want to go. Because it's a walk of faith, and we want to see. 
and the obstacles are big. Now, the obstacles are different, but they're still just as big. Instead of the fighting the children of Anak, we fight the children of Funak, like Netflix and sports and anything that entertains us. And instead of fighting the ites, we fight the isms, like naturalism and individualism and materialism and comfortism and lazyism. And whatever you want to do is them. That's more of what we fight. I mean, not everybody, but those are some of the big obstacles today. And they lead us to doubt if a walk of faith is really worth it. Will it produce what I want out of life? And listen, this is true of even those who seem to be serving the Lord. Many of you have convinced yourself that what you are doing is enough. And you're trying to serve God and mammon, but hey, at least God made the list. And I'll give him some of my time and a little bit of my money. It's better than some people. And maybe it is, but it's still selfishness. You can't work for the Lord and get to set your own hours and your own parameters of what you want to do and what you're not willing to do. And then when it gets hard, decide to walk away because it's not worth it. No, that's wrong. It has to be the other way around. It's the only thing worth anything. Living for God, doing His work, fulfilling His mission, what else is there? You're wasting your life if you're not doing that. Even if it means you have to face big enemies, even if that means you have to face suffering, why do you want to spend your life Investing everything you have in these 40 or 60 or 80, maybe even 100 short years when there is an eternity after that. And in light of eternity, this life is a moment. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and 17 says, For which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. And listen to this. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. This is a moment. James calls our entire physical life a vapor. James 4.14, Whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time, a moment, and then vanisheth away. And yet we know the promise of what's, what, what is waiting for us if we serve him in this moment with this vapor of a life. We know that the struggles will be worth it. We know Romans 8.18 says, for I, reckon that this, for I reckon, for I determined, for I decided, for I have counted it, that the reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. We know that verse. And yet, we don't change. Tell me how we're different from the nation of Israel. Because like I said, those spies knew it too. They knew the land was theirs. They just weren't sure it was worth the trouble of getting in. And so they doubted that God could take them in. 
And in doing so, they took the next step down. After they doubted God's promise, number two, they discouraged God's people. You see, they were supposed to go to be an encouragement to the people, to bring back a report that instilled in them confidence. They were to go check out the land and instill confidence in the people. But they did just the opposite. And and Matt gave us a great definition of discouragement when he preached a couple weeks ago. And I don't know if you caught it, but it was really good. He said the discouragement was removing the courage from someone. And how fitting is that definition here? Those spies did exactly that. In their own fear, they removed the courage of an entire nation with their doubting. Moses recounted it this way in Deuteronomy 1, verses 27 and 28. And he murmured in your tents and said, because the Lord hated us. Look at that, that verbiage. Because the Lord hated us. He hath brought us forth out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites, to destroy us. Whither shall we go up? Our brethren have discouraged our hearts, saying the people is greater and taller than we. The cities are great and walled up to heaven. And moreover, we've seen the sons of the Anakins there. You see, the people were discouraged because of this majority report. And you see this type of thing all the time in Christian circles. Some people that doubt the Lord and doubt His way and doubt His promises, they don't want to be alone in that. And if that's you, you want to take others with you. You want to discourage others. It's a little different context, but the Apostle Paul uses a very interesting word in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1 in describing leaders. That, this, that have this type of doubting faith. In verses 18 and 19 of that chapter, he says, This charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on thee, that thou by them mightest war a good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience, which some, having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck. And, and the word I find interesting there is, in that text is, is shipwreck. Paul said that there were some who weren't holding on to their faith. They were walking by sight, and they've made shipwreck. So their ship went down. But here's the thing about ships. You are rarely on them alone. It's, it's not a canoe or a, or a you know, a, what's, the, what's the one person? Kayak. <laughs> and say they made, you know, they made, they made kayak wreck. They made shipwreck. On ships, there's a bunch of people. So anyone who is on the ship goes down too. And listen, these spies made shipwreck. Took a whole nation down with them. Back in Numbers 13, you can see some of the very subtle language they used that contributed to discouraging the people. Verse 27, they said, We came unto the land whither thou sentest us. Verse 32, they said, The land through which we have gone to search it is a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof. You see, what they didn't say in there is the land that God had promised us or even the land that God has provided us. They didn't say it that way because they were walking by sight. 
and not by faith. They weren't walking according to the promise. And in the walk of sight, all they could see was the trouble. And so they discouraged themselves, and in doing so, they discouraged the people. And they talked everyone out of following the Lord. And this, listen, this is exactly why some of us will never realize everything that God has for us. This is the reason why some of us will never realize our divine potential, so to speak, and live out the purpose that God has for your life, for our life, the, the divine purpose he has. Because the threat seems so much larger than the opportunity. And our courage has been removed. And maybe it is simply the fear of failure. And you look out and you're like, man, I don't, I don't know that I can walk that walk. My past is what it is. I've dealt with it. I don't know. I don't know if I can walk that walk. But listen, if that's the case, you just have a misunderstanding of failure. Because in the Christian walk, failure is not when you try and don't succeed. Failure is when you don't try. And Proverbs 24, 16 says, A righteous man falleth seven times and riseth up again. But the wicked shall fall into mischief. The wicked falls and doesn't even try to get back up. That's, that's failure in the, in, the, in, in the Christian walk. Failure is permitting your faith to be limited by your fear. Failure is seeing the mission and not having the wherewithal to go after it. So what is it that is keeping you from living according to God's promises in his word? Why won't you start? Why won't you serve your Savior? Why won't you change? Why won't you decide? Why won't you answer the call? Why won't you begin your journey of really living? Do you lack the courage to consecrate? If so then that is a mediocre, lukewarm, scared, and doubting mentality. And you will never reach spiritual maturity. You'll never, you will never reach what God intends for you, what God desires of you, and what God promises you if you'll just walk by faith. You will never receive all he has for you. And we know where this story ends with Israel. Why do you think it will end somewhere else with you? And look at verse 31 again. But the men that went up with him said, We be not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. We don't have the strength. We are too weak. And that's what the enemy within always tells you, isn't it? You tell yourself, you can't overcome this obstacle you face because you're too weak. You just don't have it in you. And there's this sin that you can't overcome and it is just too big for you. That is a lie. You have a promise from the Word of God to be able to overcome if you will walk by faith. So don't believe that lie. Here is the problem with mediocre, lukewarm, scared, doubting, doubting thinking. The problem with mediocre thinking people 
is that they always assess the possibilities, the opportunities that God puts in front of them. They always assess them only in the context of their insecurities. And when that's us, we end up giving ourselves all the excuses about why we can't. When we do that, we're only thinking inside the box of our insecurities and not thinking inside the box of faith where God can do everything. And if you feel like you don't really want to take on the challenge of a faithful life and you allow yourself to become discouraged by others or just by what you see, and so you'll think, man, I can't pray. I can't praise, I can't speak in public, I can't tithe, I can't let go of a bad habit, I can't cut loose of this immoral, destructive, dysfunctional relationship, I can't get discipled, I can't disciple someone else, I can't get involved with this church, I can't discipline myself, I can't get over the pain of my past, I can't give up my bitterness, I can't get over my grief, I can't read my Bible every day, I can't make it to church every Sunday, I can't do what is expected of me, I can't love my spouse, I can't listen to my children, I can't get along with my co-workers, I can't handle these hurts and struggles. And all I have to say to that is if that is your perspective, then you're right, you can't, and you won't. In many ways, we have become a group of people that cry the blues and complain about what we cannot do and what we do not have. And we do that because we have not learned to use the promises of this book to propel our faith forward. Look at verse 32 to see it. They move backward to discouragement instead of forward in faith. Verse 32, and they brought up an evil report of the land which they had searched unto the children of Israel, saying, The land through which we have gone to search it is a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof. And all the people that we saw in it are men of great stature. You see, they move from talking about the opportunity and the land that floweth with milk and honey and has great fruit in it. They move from that in verse 27, to now giving an evil report of the land. And it's a land that eats up the people and spits them out. They move backwards into discouragement instead of forward into faith. That was the next step down. And listen, I'm not even saying there wasn't something to be discouraged about. We haven't talked about it yet, but we read the sons of Anak were there. They were the giants. Look at verse 33. And there we saw the giants, sons of Anak, which come of the giants. And we were in our sight as grasshoppers, and so we were in their sight. Now, I know it would disappoint some people in this room if we didn't talk about the giants. Shout out to X-Files Church. But... So, let's talk about it for a second. We're not going to belabor the point, but we'll talk about it for a second. To start with, the word giants is found 13 times in the Bible. Again, the number of rebellion. So in case you didn't know, giants are bad. You know, Think Goliath. Giants are bad. The first mention of giants is found in Genesis 6-4. 
And it's there we get the definition. There were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, and, and same became mighty men, which were of old men of renown. So the giants, as defined by the Bible, were the offspring of the sons of God and the daughters of men. Now, there is some, I don't know if controversy is the right word, but we'll use it. There's some controversy as to what the sons of God means in this context. And there will be people that think it's this sons of the godly line of Seth. If you do a study, we're not going to take the time to do it this morning, but if you do a study of the sons of God, that study would show you that every single, 100%, every single Old Testament reference of that phrase, sons of God, refers to angels. So these were the fallen angels, as 2 Peter 2 references, that Jude 6 and 7 said left their first estate. And leaving their first estate, they came down unto the daughters of men and propagated a race of giants that we read about in Genesis 6. They were mighty men of renown. And what's interesting is that Genesis 6 is obviously before the worldwide flood of Genesis 7 and 8. That's the story of Noah's Ark. And God caused the flood to destroy the earth because of this reason. And because what it says in there in maybe verse 23 or something like that is that all flesh was corrupted. And I think that is a key word, all. But four men and four women, or, or let's say four daughters of men, were allowed to enter the ark. Noah, his three sons, and their wives. And you know the story. The flood comes, Noah and his family start everything over. And yet somehow the giants return. I mean, everything on the earth is killed, and yet the giants return. And we knew that they would, because in Genesis 6-4 it says there were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that. So the real question is how? How do these giants return? And I'm not going to give you the answer because I don't know. But I'm, I am going to give you something to think about. Obviously the giants of number, Numbers 13 are in, in Canaan. And it's interesting. There, the word giants is referenced 13 times in the Bible. Two Hebrew words is used. One of them is Nephilim. Nephilim is only found in Genesis 6 and Numbers 13. This is the land of, of Canaan. The Canaanites and a bunch of other ites. All descendants of Canaan, the son of Ham, the son of Noah. You can see all that in Genesis chapter 10. Well, Genesis chapter 9, Noah had a little mess up. And Ham is involved, and because of it, Canaan is cursed. Which is interesting, because it wasn't Ham. Canaan, Canaan wasn't involved in the sin of Genesis 9. And yet Canaan was cursed. And another thing that's interesting is that when Moses writes the account of Genesis 10 and gives the genealogies, he flips back and forth between saying the sons of so-and-so to so-and-so begat so-and-so. And in the account of Canaan, it does not say that Ham begat Canaan. It says that he was a son of Canaan. And there are many places in the Bible where God calls a stepson a son. And so that's all I'm going to say about the doctrine of giants. But, but here's the thing. There is something about the cursed line of Canaan. Someone should look into that. 
But here's why all that matters. Here's why I even mention it. Because while that's kind of fun and interesting, it doesn't really help us walk by faith today. But it matters because you have to know that there has always been and will be until eternity a curse on everything God deems unholy. Now, not always a a literal, physical curse like with Canaan, but there's always at least a figurative curse on anything God deems unholy. Today, we have the curse of sin. And when we doubt, and when we are discouraged, and when we live our life walking by sight, that means we are walking in the flesh and not in the spirit. And in Genesis 6, God said all flesh was corrupt. And guess what? All flesh is corrupt today too. It's why we have to put our doubts and our discouragements aside. What we're feeling because of what we see. And walk instead by faith. Otherwise, it is a sin. Do not kid yourself. We like to go through life and just, okay, as long as I don't lie and cheat and steal, okay, well then, okay, I'm not sinning. Maybe I'm not doing exactly what I should be, but at least I'm not living in sin. The the, the Bible says otherwise. Anything unholy, anything not done according to faith is what Romans 14.23 says. Guess what's opposite of faith? Sight. And so when you walk by sight instead of by faith, you are walking in sin. And that brings us to our last point, because after the people were discouraged, they took their final step down, and they disobeyed God's plan. Look back at verse 30. Because while everything we've talked about so far was the majority report, it wasn't the only report. Caleb wanted to walk by faith. Verse 30 says, And Caleb stilled the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. But the men that went up with him said, We be not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. See, Caleb spoke for the Lord, but the others wouldn't listen. And And the others didn't even say, well, man, we hear you, Caleb, but I don't know, man. Those dudes look pretty big. I'm a little scared. No, that's not what they said. They said, we be not able to go up against the people. So it's not even possible. It doesn't matter what God has promised us. We we are not able to do it. And what they said with that statement was no. We'll see the full impact of that next week, of that statement, when they tell the Lord no. We're going to see the full impact of it as we dive in to chapter 14 next week. But the no given here is what the nation accepted. And the choice was made. And the choice was disobedience to God's plan and ultimately disobedience to God's word. And it really was because of those doggone giants. I mean, all the ites were scary, certainly. But verse 33, I think, is the kicker. It says, There we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which come of the giants. 
and we were in our own sight as grasshoppers. And so we were in their sight. He said, when we looked at ourselves compared to them, we were as grasshoppers. That is how small we looked. They could just step on us and squash us. And when they looked at us, they saw us as grasshoppers. And that was it. You see, not only did they see the giants, the giants saw them. So in this spy mission, they were found out. And the giants saw them, and they couldn't get over that. And listen, I mean, I wouldn't like it either if giants saw me and were coming after me or whatever it was that happened. But the thing the nation of Israel forgot is while, while there were giants in the land, they had the Lord on their side. And while they were like grasshoppers to the giants, the giants were like grasshoppers to the Lord. In fact, Isaiah chapter 40, verses 21 and 22 says, Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers. He stretches out the heaven as a curtain and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in. You see, if they had only walked by faith and not by sight, instead of seeing the giants, they would have, they would have seen the one who was over the giants. Faith would have pointed them above and not below. So instead of saying like they did in verse 31, we be not able, they would have been like Caleb. Or they would have said like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said when facing King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 3, 17. It says, if it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. And I don't even have it up there, but that next verse says, you know what, even if he's not, we're still not bowing down. You see, here's the thing. Those spies were right. They weren't able. But those three Jewish boys were right too. God is. One was walking by sight. The other was walking by faith. And here's the thing about that. Walking by sight is the easy decision in the short term because it's, what, it's based upon what feels right in the moment. And it's where we started this whole sermon. It's, it's walking according to your feelings and letting your feelings rule. And if you feel something, it must be real. It's not true. Feelings are just that. They're feelings. They do not have to be based on fact. It's that walk through the haunted house. Those feelings aren't real. You may feel it, but they're not based on what is actually real. So, for example, your feelings will tell you to follow your heart. But the Bible tells you in Jeremiah 17, 9, that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? You can't trust your heart. That's why you have to walk by faith. Your heart will lead you to disobey God's plan and God's word. That is what the children of Israel did. They followed their heart. 
and their heart told them the cost was too much, that it wasn't worth it. Because here's the thing, just to boil this down to the end. At the end of the day, here's what they did. They took a biblical principle, they just applied it incorrectly. Because like we've talked about all along, they knew the promise. This was their land, there was no doubt about that. It wasn't like, well, maybe this isn't ours, maybe we're confused. No, it, wasn't no, it was none of that. They knew the promise, they knew the land was theirs. Here's what they did. They counted the cost, and they determined that it was just too much to pay. And counting the cost is a biblical principle. Luke 14, verses 27 and 28, And whosoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, sitteth not down first and counteth the cost, whether he has sufficient to finish it? So the principle is biblical. Their application wasn't. You see, we are to count the cost so that we know what's in store and so that we can be prepared. If we don't have enough money to finish the foundation, it doesn't mean we stop. It means we prepare and we do what we need to do to get enough money to finish it. We are not to count the cost with the option of opting out. That's what Israel did. And let me ask you, is that what you've done? When it comes to the walk of faith, obeying the Lord and living by the principles of the Bible, have you counted the cost and looked at all the giants, all the things you'll have to give up, all the friends you'll have to quit hanging out with, all the embarrassment that comes with being a fanatical follower of Christ, have you looked at all of it and said, you know what? I don't think it's worth it. I can't do it. I know what the Bible says, but I don't care. You know, the wilderness isn't all that bad. I mean, we've, 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 we've made it pretty close. I mean, yeah, we're, we're not going to go in and possess the land, but we're kind of up next to it. I mean, we kind of get to rub shoulders every Sunday with some people that are doing it. That's close enough, isn't it? And listen, if that's you, can I just ask you why? Like I said earlier, you know how this ends for Israel, and I'm telling you it's going to end the same with you as well. Why do you want to walk that same path? Why don't you decide today to be like Caleb? Who wants to be like the majority anyway? What fun is there in that? Listen, Caleb was the only one with sense. Look one more time at verse 30. Caleb stilled the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. He stilled the people. It means he silenced them and calmed them. You know what he did? For a moment, he got the focus off of their feelings. He calmed them because they were feeling nervous. He got their feelings off of that onto the facts of the situation. He just couldn't keep them there. And they just wouldn't listen, all because of what they saw with their eyes. Caleb heard what the other spies said. Listen, he didn't even disagree. 
He just couldn't settle for that as the answer. He didn't allow the challenges he faced and everything they felt to bring about an accepted defeat before they considered faith. Because feelings say, I can't do it. But faith says, along with Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Feeling says the challenge is impossible, but faith says with Mark 10, 27, with men it is impossible, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. Feelings say I am weak, but faith says with 2 Corinthians 12, 9, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And feelings say you should be scared of the giants, but faith says with Psalm 27, 1, the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? Lord is the strength of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? Feelings say you ought to give up. Faith says you ought to keep going. So if your feelings say one thing, and your faith says something else, listen to your faith. Walk by faith and not by sight. The opportunity we have to do something really cool for the Lord in this 11th hour, in these very last days, is too great. And it's right in front of us. Why do you want to stop short now? You see, there's something very interesting about opportunities. Opportunities come and opportunities go. But when they leave, they take something with them. And when one leaves, it's gone, and it took with it the chance to be forward with your faith. And it took with it the possibility of a life-changing experience. A minute ago, we talked about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those three Jewish boys that got thrown in the fiery furnace. And they did it because they said God was able. I want you to think for a second. What if they hadn't done that? What if they had counted the cost? And said it wasn't worth it. And they said, you know what, guys, let's just bow down. And they bowed down. What would have happened? You know what would have happened? God would have forgiven them. Life would have gone on. But that opportunity to trust the Lord would have taken something with it. In Daniel 3, verses 24 and 25, says that Nebuchadnezzar the king was a stonied and rose up in haste and spake and said unto his counselors, Did not we cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said unto the king, True, O king. He answered and said, Lo, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they have no hurt. And the form of the fourth is the Son of God. That is what it would have took with it. How many times do we miss spending the night in the fire with Jesus? All be, not to get burned even. All because we decided it cost too much. Don't settle for mediocre, lukewarm, scared thinking and living anymore. Do what you've got to do to live your life by walking in faith, by walking in the Spirit. Quit doubting God's promises. Quit discouraging God's people. and Quit disobeying God's plan and ignoring what His Word says and not believing it. And listen, I'm done. 
But as we close, I do not mind confessing in front of all of you right now that I do not want to be a mediocre, lukewarm, scared, doubting person doing a mediocre, lukewarm, scared, doubting job with a mediocre, lukewarm, scared, doubting family who have mediocre, lukewarm, scared, and doubting ambitions. And I do not want to be a pastor, a mediocre pastor in a church full of mediocre people, all who have a mediocre faith. When we have an exceptional God. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. We thank you so much for your word. And Lord, uh, we, we fall short in so many areas, Lord. And, and I pray that it, any of us in here now that are falling short in this walk, and we are walking by sight and we are not walking by faith, Lord, I pray that you convict us. I pray that you show us how true your word is, how those promises are 100%. There's no doubt in them. Lord, we do not have to doubt what, what is ahead. And Lord, while if we, if we walk by faith, it doesn't mean it's going to be easy. There will be giants, there will be obstacles, there will be things that we have to face, there will be decisions that we have to make. But Lord, it's so worth it. It's so worth it. Just, just convince our hearts of that right now. And Lord, I pray for anyone here, Lord, if they do not know you as personal Savior, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit convicts them of their need to call on you today. Lord, to call on you to be saved. If they have any questions about that, I encourage them to come forward. Just prick their hearts to come forward and talk to one of us about that, Lord. And if there's anybody in here that needs to get right with you today, Lord, I pray that they do it today. And ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Why don't you stand? We're going to close out in one worship song. This is your time to commune with the Lord. If you need to do business with the Lord, make sure you don't leave today before you do it.